Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Sean Murphy. Sean Murphy uh, has his own company, FNDR, and his area of expertise is communication security. But today our topic is going to be specifically talking about hotel communication security. Um, welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Sean. It's great to be here. Well, you're considered one of the nation's leading experts in communication security, and as I understand it, you have just dedicated your life to developing technology solutions for the average consumer, which would be us, which would definitely be me, uh, to create a protected communications platform in a world where privacy has almost ceased to exist. Let's talk specifically, what does that mean in terms of hotel communication security? What We're not secure when we go to a hotel and uh, we check into our rooms. Um, We're apparently, according to you, we're left very vulnerable in, in terms of getting our credit card information stolen and a whole list or a whole myriad of things. So where do we begin? Well, certainly. And, you know, when we go on travel, when we go on vacation or even, you know, work trips, uh, we usually let our defenses down because there's so much stress involved with, you know, being away from home in a new area. Maybe it's good stress. Maybe it's, it's, it's not so good stress. Uh, but really, criminals are taking advantage of that, and we're starting to see a big change in the way the world uh, is handling financial information and personal information as well. Uh, you know, you go you go to a local store and you buy something with a credit card. Now, you, chances are you don't swipe your credit card. You have a little chip uh, reader, and you you know sign it. Or internationally, you do a, a pen. Uh, and so thieves are looking for different avenues to get that credit card information, that billing information. And we're better to do it than hotels and other places where you don't have to swipe a card. You just basically hand a card to somebody, they type it in, uh, and, and that's called the card not present transaction. And those are the things that criminals are really looking for. And it's not just financial information, it's also personal information as well. You know, uh, probably you know, more than a decade ago, we started to see these, these massive, rise, massive instances of, of identity theft where people were getting credit cards in your name, uh, or, or getting loans in your name. And nowadays that still happens, but it's, it's getting to the point where uh, they're capturing as much information about you as possible. Uh, and whether or not it's, you know, what time you show up at the hotel, what movies you like to watch, uh, maybe the hotel is storing some other information about you, you know, what, what your you know, best friend in high school, your first pet's name. You know, it, it sounds ridiculous, but all this information, when it correlated together, gives the new generation of identity theft, which I call identity takeover, uh, because they can actually, you know, they can virtually become you. So what happens, how much is that in terms of numbers? I mean, now the world is, you know, we're a global economy, and we travel all over the world, and I'm listening to you, I'm thinking, and I travel all over the world, and you're right, I go into a hotel, they ask for your credit card, they say they need it for, let's say, incidental, so they can charge you at the end of your stay, whatever it is, and these chains are all over the world that one will stay at. Uh, probably doesn't matter which chain it is, it can all be hacked into, so what do you do? What do you say? Like you walk into the hotel, you're talking about they can seal your identity, they can get all the kinds of personal information, like you're saying, what movies do you watch, uh, uh, you know, all your personal habits, I guess. You know, you even talk about room service orders and what you like to eat and all those kinds of things. Well, so what do you tell the hotel? You walk in and they, you have to give them your credit card. So how do we avoid the, uh, uh, criminals getting all of this information? 
Well, I think there's only so much you can do as, as, a, as an individual. Obviously, you're going to want to make sure that the hotel has your interests in mind when, when you're performing these transactions. Uh, and, and at the end of the day, they're really trying to protect their interests and what, they, what their responsibilities are uh, with the credit card processing uh, service that they use. The best thing that you can do is really defend yourself. Uh, and when you go to a hotel or maybe even a restaurant and travel, anything where you hand your card over to somebody, make sure that you have a separate card for that. Uh, and it seems like very simple advice, but it's, it's probably one of the easiest things for you to do. If you have a credit card that is solely for uh, hotel purchases and that's all you use it for, you don't, when you go back home, you don't use it for anything else. Uh, you, you know, if, if you go to the gas station, you don't use it for that. That segmentation of your financial uh, information is extremely valuable uh, because if, if a hacker does get that information, if they do if breach that credit card, you can, you can identify it very quickly. No, I didn't buy anything from Amazon using that card. It's only for my hotel purchases. And so well, I think, what, about, what about airfare? Like you're taking a trip. Do you include airfare in that? Do you get one credit card separate for airfare or separate for the hotels, or do you get one for both or what? Well, I would do just one. I mean, start off with one. I mean, if you can do something where you get special points or you get something else, you know, the thing you don't want to do is have a credit card for each thing in your life. <laughs> because then it gets to the point where you can't manage it and you can't control it. Uh, but the reality is, is most of your transactions, unless you're a really heavy-duty traveler, most of your transactions are not going to be travel-related. And so if you have a travel-related card, that's, that's a great thing to do. Okay, so that's, that, that's, a, that's good advice, and I, I never would have thought about. As a matter of fact, as a consumer, I always think about cutting down on credit cards. You know, I only have two. You know, I don't need five different credit cards or whatever. So um, actually, in this case, that's not a good idea. So get one credit card for travel. Okay, so we do that. One of the other things you also say is, though, uh, I was reading some of your recommendations. Explain this, because you say just skip out on some of the conveniences that hotels offer, room service, free Internet access. I mean, all the things that... They are kind of like services that you want to have that seem like very convenient things to hook into, but you say don't do that. Certainly. And, you know, when you go to these bigger resorts where they have just a tremendous amount of, of things that you can sign up for and, and, you know, include with your stay, if you can pay for it separately, that's fantastic. But, again, as much of that information that they are capturing in their database uh, if a hacker gets in there, they can see all that. So, you know, it doesn't matter if they know what, you know, stuff you get from the vending machine. Probably not. Uh, but, again, this, core, this concept of correlated data, if they know that you like to do yoga on Saturdays and they know that you like to eat a certain type of food in a restaurant, this information is extremely valuable. And if you go uh, just on the dark side of the web uh, where this information is sold every day, every day there's uh, new packages of information about people, any data breach that happens, this type of information is extremely valuable to hackers uh, because that allows them to know you and, and know who you are and eventually act like you and behave like you online. Uh, and that's pretty terrifying. So things like that, but, you know, reducing the Sean, but I want to ask, but I'd have to interrupt because what, who's selling it to them? Like say you go to a hotel chain, just, you know, ones that we are all familiar with. Um, are they selling it? Is somebody within the company selling it to the to the these other people who want to buy the information to use to, um, you know, to take over your identity? Who's selling well, it have, to them? You do have two threats. The first threat is the insider. The insider in the company, whether or not it's officially 
you know, they're officially tasked with doing that, selling it to advertisers and that type of thing. Or you have a rogue employee that, that does it. I mean, that's certainly a, a, a real threat. The biggest threat, though, is an external hacker getting into the system. And that external hacker, they're getting in there for one reason and one reason only, to get that personal information and turn around to sell it or use it for uh, nefarious purposes. So you do have an insider and an external uh, threat element to each one of these. Okay, so different people have different reasons for, uh, I guess, what you're saying for getting this information. But you, okay, so now you have other, what other recommendations can you give to us so that we can avoid some of this? I mean, you talk about creating temporary passwords for sites you want to use while traveling. What do you mean by that? What do we do? Well, I think one of the best things you could do, you know, most people just have to connect to the Wi-Fi. They have to connect to whatever, you know, maybe they have a little Ethernet cable in the hotel room that you connect to, and you have to do it. Uh, I, I fully understand that. And what I recommend, there's a few things you can do. Is Number one, use a different web browser than you normally use. Uh, something like if you use Internet Explorer on, on Windows or Safari on Mac, uh, download Firefox. And use that. Firefox is a free browser. You don't have to pay anything. It's, it's uh, run by an organization, a nonprofit. Uh, and you can use that to do all your web browsing. Uh, and, and that browser won't leak any information about you. So any stored passwords, anything that you may have uh, stored in your other browser, this one won't have that, and that protects you. Uh, but moreover, if you are traveling a lot, you know, think about swapping out passwords as you go. Because, you know, you may just connect to something that's not safe, you may accidentally inadvertently log in somewhere that you didn't mean to, and eventually they're going to, you know, something is going to get a password. Something is going to get access to your account. And if you have a, if you have a policy of rotating these things out, and that's what I do. When I go on travel, uh, I will set up my, my passwords to, to be different. You know, it's not something that I have one password for everything, uh, but I certainly will, when I come back from travel, I will reset that password to something else. Uh, that's just to say if someone did capture that information and they didn't use it right away, uh, that that information is not going to come back and, and bite me, you know, a, a week later or several days after I get back from travel. Well, these seems like, I mean, these are reasonable things, fairly easy to do, and I guess if you get in the habit of doing it, it doesn't seem so overwhelming so that, you know, this is just something you do routinely as part of your travel. That's what you need to do to protect yourself. Um, and another thing that you talk about, and I'm guilty of this, like you say, bring your, your own computer. Well, I sometimes I'll bring my own computer, but then I'll use the computer in the hotel or I'll use it someplace else. You say, no, do not do that for a lot of reasons. Tell us why we shouldn't be doing that. Yeah, that's, that's very dangerous. Anytime that you're using a shared resource or a resource that uh, a computer or a touchscreen terminal that they have somewhere in the lobby uh, or even in the, the office center, uh, if anyone else has access to that, you know, especially someone who's knowledgeable about these systems, you know, they can plug in a $10 device or you know, a small little device that sits in the back and you would never know it's there and it's capturing every keystroke that you type on that keyboard. So if you type in passwords, usernames, uh, sensitive emails, all those type of uh, keystrokes on the keyboard are being captured and stored or remotely uh, transmitted somewhere else. And you would never know they're there. I mean, those devices could sit there for years and no one would know uh, it was there. Uh, but moreover, I, again, you just don't know who's running that system. Did they spend the time to secure it? Uh, did, did, they, did they value your privacy and security? Or did they just want to you know, buy an appliance and stick it in there so you could you know, edit your, your documents and print your boarding pass? Uh, so you just don't know. You don't know how secure these things are, and uh, you have to assume that they're they're uh, being monitored or some you know someone either intentionally or not intentionally 
uh, is, is capturing information about you. Yeah, it's interesting. I once went to a hotel and I was down using the computer, the hotel computer, and somebody had really not logged out, I guess. And right. it was a, an attorney who was trying a major case, and all that information was on that computer in terms of depositions, all kinds of things. I immediately just deleted it. <laughs> so, I, I mean, I, but it was just, it was, and I, it, obviously this person wasn't aware of simply how to just, you have to log out of the system. Otherwise, sure. yeah. Um, I mean, so that, that's an, it's a little bit different than what you're talking about, but, you know, there it was. Um, so don't bring your own computer. Try not, do not use, if you don't have to, a computer in, uh, well, in, I guess in an airport or a train station or a hotel or any place. Do you have any stories, like a specific story that you can share with us where, there, you know, somebody did that and they, you know, what happened? Oh, I've got several stories. And, you know, we try to help people uh, prevent these type of, you know, any sort of incident that might happen before, uh, you know, you go on travel or before you go to a special event. Or, you know, we try to prevent that as much as we can, but the reality is that sometimes it just happens. And to recover afterwards, it's just like, you know, if, you, if someone steals your credit card, the, the, the damage isn't really financial because you get that money back. You know, they, they insure you and you don't have to pay the money and all that wonderful stuff. But the problem is now you have to go and change all the automatic billing systems you have, anything that has your credit card that bills you every month, well, now you have to change it with them. So it really is a, a, a massive amount of time to change that information. The same is true about personal information, too. Just think about if you have a free web uh, email, you know, it's Gmail, uh, Yahoo, whatever it is, and someone were to get into that, uh, they, either you left it logged in or they somehow captured your password, and they go in there and they change the password, they change the, you know, your best friend in high school, they change, you know, all those security questions that we have, so they basically take over your entire account, and now they have full access to your email. Well, when they have that, now they can reset your passwords on every other website, you know, your social media, uh, hopefully not your bank, but some banks are vulnerable to this. Uh, and, and basically, they, they, they assume your identity, and they take over everything else that you have. And you, you, know, you kind of think about that, that sort of cascading effect that it would have, and it doesn't seem practical or real, but it's happened. It's happened to some high-profile journalists. And to recover from that takes weeks, days, you know, whatever it is. And sometimes it's, it's not repairable, uh, especially free services that you use online, social media, where that's, that is, for a lot of people, that's your identity online. If that gets taken over, a lot of times those companies, they really don't want to get involved in that. They say, well, if you don't know the password and you can't recover your email or anything like that, then we can't prove it's not you that's, that's accessing it. And so you're sort of uh, left in the dark with that. And, and so I think that's really the, the problem with privacy and security issues is that, you know, once a breach happens, to recover from that is such a pain either financially or uh, just a, a time sink. And so we do see that quite often, that, that this happens. Uh, you know, I, I've seen examples of that on television, people that that have ha- has happened to. It really can destroy individuals. I'm talking, can it? I mean, mentally? I mean, if you can, I mean, if, like you say, that sometimes you just, there's nothing you can do to rectify it, that, and you're just then stuck, I guess, right? I mean, that, that would be a horrific, horrible thing to be stuck in, I guess. Um, yeah. Yeah, certainly. I mean, it's it's one of those things, you know, especially the younger generation where social media has become their identity. You know, the the human-to-human interaction is 
still fairly important, but the way they present themselves online and what services they use, it, it's so ingrained into their identity. And once that gets lost, it's, it's absolutely devastating. Uh, and, and not only just for the younger generation, everyone, uh, you know, how hard is it for someone to get in there and access your banking details or, or get credit card information? Uh, you know, it's, it's getting easier and easier as they get more information about you. Uh, and, and that's what really terrifies me more is not just the, the, the concept of identity theft, but this identity takeover is, is uh, very much in the forefront of my mind. So, Sean, what are we talking about in terms of numbers? Do we have any numbers or statistics when you talk about this identity theft? Oh, it's, it's absolutely massive. And, you know, when you hear about, every week you'll hear about some sort of a hack. You know, whether or not it's hotels, which is, you know, what we're talking about today, but, you know, government sites, uh, the Office of Personnel Management, uh, the White House, uh, you know, so government institutions are getting hacked left and right. Um, then just general web services, you know, you, if you think about any sort of social media site that's been hacked, just think of the, the amount of information that's been gathered from there. Uh, and, and just go back, just go into uh, your, your favorite news aggregation service and type in hack, and just look, every day there's something new, some new big breach. And the reality is what's going on is each one of these sites re- reveals a little bit more about you uh, than the previous hack did. And once you correlate all this information together, you get the big picture, the big picture of uh, who you are, your identity online, uh, and it, it just gives attackers, you know, they're not, they're not targeting you, but they're just going out there and getting a wide net for, you know, just someday they might want to attack you or they might want to, might want to attack, you know, a thousand people just randomly, and there's just no rhyme or reason for it, but they could get some money from it, uh, and they can get some additional information, some, some of your data. So how much money do they actually make? Like you're talking about these hacker attackers, I guess. Uh, what, what kind of, I mean, are they companies, groups of people, individuals? Do they, how much money do they make doing this? Or I guess, it, or is there a wide range? Or how does that work? Well, some of these massive breaches, uh, they can net millions and millions of dollars. Uh, and a lot of times it's not, you know, transa- you know the transaction is usually those, those cryptocurrencies you may hear about, Bitcoin, uh, so the value of that it very much uh, fluctuates. But anytime these big breaches happen, uh, you will see something like the, the Ashley Madison site uh, breach uh, where there was ransom. So, you know, people would be, that information was basically out there and, and they were being blackmailed. Uh, and they would say, hey, we have, we have your information. Do you want it? You've got to pay up. And they would do that to the individuals. Uh, but then they turned around and sold it uh, on, the, on the dark web. Uh, and, and they made millions of dollars off of that, too. So really, there's, I mean, there's really no limit to how much money they can make off of these breaches. And if, if you go onto some of these sites, which I don't recommend anybody do, um, you can see some of the records, uh, your Social Security number, you know, thousands of them, you can buy them for a dollar. Uh, credit card information, you can buy thousands, you know, for a dollar. Uh, all the way up to, you know, six, seven dollars for some of the higher value things per record, by the way. Uh, so it's, it's pretty profitable. It's, it's, it's not bad. Right, well, now then, there are people like you who are sort of the, uh, what would you call yourself, the, kind of the police force for this kind of thing, right? Um. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, the best thing for us to do, you know, to, to try to go after, every time a hack like this happens, there's always some speculation on who did it. Uh, you know, is it, uh, you know, for a national group, is it government sponsor, you know, whatever it is. Uh, and, and at the end of the day, it's almost impossible to figure out who it is. Maybe sometimes they get it, maybe they don't. I think the best thing for us to do is to empower ourselves as consumers uh, and, and to look at technology 
and improve it such that these things don't happen. So if, if we built a better communication platform, if we, if we built a better cloud storage platform that if it got hacked into, they wouldn't get you know, celebrities' photos and then leak them all over the web. If we built a better platform, that wouldn't happen. And moreover, as consumers, if we demanded that, that also wouldn't happen. So I think you know, policing it and, and trying to go after the criminals, I mean, they're, they're looking for opportunities. They're exploiting those opportunities because the technology that's out there allows for it. Uh, I think the best thing that we can do is lock down the security, you know, give consumers privacy and, and actual security that they can use that's transparent to them. You know, the company has to do more work, but the individual doesn't. I think that's really what I'm trying to do is, you know, try to educate uh, everyone about this, these issues, but also fix them uh, in, in, in the near term. Yeah. Okay, so we need to, you're sort of, I guess, fighting technology with technology, That's, and we need to be able to have access to technology which will help protect us from the technology that's trying to hack us, right? So I guess that's, this is the time, right. yeah, to talk about you specifically and your company, what you do in your new app that is going to hopefully help us to do that. Yeah, so uh, with Sender, uh, SNDR.com, uh, if you want to sign up, you can, you can certainly get more information as we get closer to launch. Uh, we decided to take a step back and look at communication. I've been in communication for over 20 years and, and, and securing everything from pay phones way back when, if anybody knows what those are, uh, <laughs> to the modern day, you know, cloud storage and, and cloud messaging. Everything that we know and love with our, our supercomputers that sit in our pocket every day. Uh, we, we took a step back and we said, you know what, what does communication really mean? What does file sharing really mean? And what can we do to make it better? You know, for, for some people, better means I want to be able to send a 4K video, you know, a, a massive resolution video and, and full definition to somebody without having to upload it to a site that doesn't respect my privacy or security. They put ads everywhere and all that stuff. So we wanted to have a very rich platform for that. But at the same time, we built everything around this core of, of rock-solid privacy and security. So, you know, no matter if we, get, if we get hacked into or, you know, one day I just decide to go in the database and start looking at people's messages, we can't do that. We've built the system so that it's end-to-end secure, so only you and your recipients can share that information, read those messages, and that should be the gold standard for every app. It shouldn't be something that, oh, you know, look how amazing we are. This is what every app should be doing. Every service should be doing that. Uh, and that's what Cinder is, is going to be about. It's a, a platform about communication, content sharing, that gives you back ownership of, of what, you know, you value the most and, and what you should uh, have the, the fundamental right to, and, and that's privacy and security. All right. So this app is not available now. You said, I think, before we got, what, in October, early fall? Yeah. So right now we're going through a, a tremendous amount of user testing, and we, we have launched in private industry. A lot of um, uh, small companies have been using it internally. And so when we launched the consumer, this, this isn't something that we just, you know, whipped out in three months. We, we've been working on this for a long time. A lot of research and development has gone into this. And, and all these breaches, all these hacks that we've been talking about have inspired us uh, to, to develop this platform in a way that uh, makes it easy for people. So tell us about your company. How many people are in, how many, how large a company is it? Or how many of there are you? Well, we stayed very small. We're about 20 people, uh, and you know, we're scattered across uh, the country. But we have some folks in New York, uh, some down in Orlando, Florida, Dallas, uh, and San Jose. And really what we did is we looked for the best that we could find, experts in uh, communication, experts in security, 
uh, experts in hardware development because we have a hardware element uh, to this platform as well. It's optional, but uh, we'll, we'll talk more about that come October. And so we really tried to bring everyone that, that agreed with our vision into the company and develop something that works for consumers and small businesses and eventually enterprises as well, uh, all, all on this initial core technology that we've, we've built. So you came, you, did, you said you've been in the business for 20 years. Did you also work for the government? Was this part of your, your experience as well? Yes, I've, I've worked uh, for several DOD contractors on, on different projects uh, and, you know, kind of looking at the, the technology that government has, DOD has, uh, and, and large enterprises, that sort of inspired me to, to, to find, uh, to develop Sender as well, looking at, you know, hey, these companies, these big organizations have this awesome security, this, this awesome protection, whether or not they choose to use it, you know, that's, that's a different story. Uh, and I think, you know, the general consumer, the, the general business person, someone who's, you know, sending messages back and forth to their spouse, to their children, they should have the same level of security and, and privacy as well, that looking at what the tech giants were doing and, and giving people awesome uh, functionality, functionality and, and free apps and free this and that and the other thing, but at the same time making them completely vulnerable and selling their data to advertisers and, and uh, looking at their data, I, I wanted to fix that. I wanted to say, hey, let, let me take this knowledge that I gained in the DOD and bring it to the masses because I think everyone at the end of the day deserves it. Yeah, when you say bring it to the masses, and I agree, we all deserve it, is it, and I don't know if this, is it user-friendly? I mean, can, will, will we be able to use it? Is it simple to use? Yeah, and, and that's, that's sort of the joke with security is that, you know, you want people to have a 30-character password and, you know, scan their irises and yeah. <laughs> all that stuff. <laughs> and that's absolutely not what we did with Sender. Sender, we did tremendous amount of research and user testing to make sure that, you know, yes, it is secure. Yes, it is 100% private. But at the end of the day, if you have to do more than select you want to send it to, type in a message and hit send, then it's not worth it. Uh, and that's exactly what we've done. Is we made it as simple to use as a common messaging app uh, or a, a file storage app. And in some respects, we're actually easier to use than some of the, the more popular ones. Uh, but we're dedicated to that user experience uh, and to the, 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 actual, the absolute protection of user data. And that's, that's what we're doing with Sender. Yeah, I mean that is key. You want to protect the path, the, the the masses, but you do have to keep it simple. I mean, I, I know I've sat with my kids, and and oftentimes they'll you know, well, what's your password? And they're well, oh, that password is too simple. And of course, it comes up that it's too simple, and then they want some complicated <laughs> kind of that I'm never going to remember, that I'm going to forget where I put it, and it so it becomes useless. And then I put something you know, maybe too simple as a password and uh, just because I don't want to deal with it. And I think that's sure. pretty typical. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, and, you know, at the yeah. end of the day, too, you know, if a hacker gets into their system, your password does absolutely nothing anyways because they've got full access and they can do whatever they want. And, you know, what we've, what we've tried to do is, yeah, the password's important, but the, the thing that happens after you type in your password, we've secured that in depth. So even... You know, me as the CEO of the company, I can't just walk into our data center and start looking at your data, and that just it's, it's impossible the way we've done it. So I, I think the way we've built uh, our security and, and privacy system uh, lends itself to a very awesome and very natural and simple user experience. 
Yeah. Well, Sean, exciting work that you're doing, and obviously you'll, you'll have to, you know, keep us informed. But uh, Sean Murphy, he's not, he's all over, I guess, uh, all over the country anyway. SNDR, and you can go to what? SNDR.com to get more information about the company, you, and uh, what's coming up next, right? Absolutely. I'm also on Twitter. I'm Private Sean, S H A U N. And I assume you're well protected. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thanks so much for being on the show today. Great having you. Anytime. We're going to take a short break. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Uh, Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Lauren Wright, Ph.D., uh, White House Transition Project Board Member is one of her titles, and her new book is On Behalf of the President, Presidential Spouses and White House Communication Strategy Today, and that's what we're going to be talking about. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Lauren. Happy to be here. Thank you. And as I said... Thank you for being here. I know you're on the West Coast, got up early this morning. I'm in New York City, and uh, so I, I, would, I could sleep late, but that's beside the point. Um, I was okay. just in New York, so I must have missed you, but yeah. this is great anyway. <laughs> yeah, this is good. Okay, well, I'm really excited about it because on behalf of the president, presidential spouses, and White House um, communication strategy today. I guess the gist of the book is that uh, presidents' wives have a lot of influence in terms of how presidents, uh, what, in terms of what their message is, in terms of getting that message across for their spouses, and have, uh, I guess, a lot more in- influence than perhaps um, we as the general public ever thought, and you've done a lot of research on that. So let's start with that. 
um, first ladies, influential in American politics. I don't know if this is a new phenomenon mm-hmm. or this has always been the case. It's not a new phenomenon at all, but you're exactly right. Historians have focused for a very long time on the -the behind-the-scenes influence of First Ladies, their influence over presidential decision-making. Maybe it's via staffing decisions. Maybe they give their input on policy behind closed doors. But what I found is the public role First Ladies play is really just as important because they're actually shouldering the majority of the communications responsibility in the White House. They speak in public more often than vice presidents, for example, which so many people are shocked to hear, and that's been the case in the last three administrations. And you're right, their primary role, I found, what they spend most of their time doing is shaping the president's message, reinforcing it, and really being the primary vehicle for communications to the public because they're so well-liked, so much attention is given to them, and so they're actually very effective in this particular way. So they have a lot of power, and as you say, Michelle Obama, as I understand it, you talk about this in the book, and I just want to read this, because made more speeches and major public appearances in her first six years in office than any other first lady in recent history, right? Um, That's right. And, yeah, and, I, and wouldn't it be the case we have, that she has the opportunity to do that because of all the, well, we have social media, we have the Internet. I mean, never before have we had those vehicles to do that either, right? That's true, but if you look at social media, which is a, I thought that was the explanation for this uptick in communications activity too, but if you look at other surrogates, their speeches and their public appearances have not increased at the same rate. Those have remained constant despite the, you know, the proliferation of all these new tools to communicate with the public. So we would expect vice presidents to be speaking more often, too, if that's the case. And it's not. It's really just first ladies who have increased over time and other surrogates have remained pretty steady and with the rate they appear in front of the public. So it's not just that, but the Obama administration has really taken advantage of those tools. They've leveraged those tools in order to communicate directly with the public. They don't have to go through the White House press room necessarily. They go to alternative media. They go to pop media. So it's, uh, it's, they've revolutionized the way first ladies communicate with the public, but it's something special about first ladies still. It's not all surrogates, and I think that's So why do you think that's happened? Yeah, that's interesting, because the next question is, why do you think that's happened? Is that something that presidents and their spouses <clears throat> have planned, because the spouses have more leeway? Like you said, they can go to media that's, you know, maybe not the mainstream media and get their message across? I mean, how how has this happened, or why has it happened? Because I know you've done thousands of interviews. You have a lot of information, a lot of research for your book. Um, why is it happening, and why now? Well, of course, presidents and their spouses do have a lot of discretion over what they do and why and when. But it's really happened, and I did find this through interviews, but also by looking at almost 2,000 speeches given by first ladies over the last three years because the White House has learned how to mobilize the First Lady strategically. 
And they are such a unique surrogate because, yes, they have the leeway with the media. They don't have to go through the White House press room rotation. And when they do these YouTube appearances and when they do late-night talk shows, they don't risk being called unpresidential. They get some of that flack sometimes, but it's not as much. They're more popular than presidents. That's extremely consistent over time. More popular than vice presidents. Higher name recognition than vice presidents. And those evaluations are not based in partisanship as much as evaluations of presidents and vice presidents. So they can kind of transcend politics in a way. And so the combination of all these factors, uh, such a popular person, such an active person, so much interest has created a surrogate that the White House has relied very heavily upon, and they've just gotten more strategic over time. That's the reason. So we're talking about, let's say, the three administrations, as you say, the Clinton administration, Bush, and Obama, all three. So do you think it has anything to do with, up until this point anyway, they've all been, we're talking about women. I mean, that's different than men. Vice presidents have been men traditionally, and um, spouses in the White House have been women. Does it have anything Mm -hmm. to do with their gender? Well, gender scholars would say Mm -hmm. yes, and I'm not one of them. And, of course, part of the appeal of having a woman in, you know, what they would say is such a male-dominated environment is that it's different. It uh, provides a different perspective than perhaps the president or the vice president can provide. But what I actually find through my more recent research is that Bill Clinton is playing a very similar role on the campaign trail to what spouses have been doing for a long time. He is an image softener for Hillary Clinton. He is there to really shore up her character, and that's what spouses do really well. And I think he'll do many of the the same things in the White House. And so in that aspect, I don't think it's as gendered as we might assume. Okay, that's Bill Clinton. Now let's, what about Melania Trump? Where does she fit into this picture? I've done research on Melania Trump, too. Uh, Both Bill Clinton and Melania Trump I find out about via survey experiments. So what I ask people uh, when they see a picture of Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton together versus a picture of Hillary Clinton alone, do they evaluate her more favorably? And the answer is often yes, especially among Republicans, which is very interesting. Uh, Melania Trump has a similar effect. So she hasn't been nearly as active on the campaign trail, um, not compared to Bill Clinton anyway, and not compared to other Trump surrogates. But she's very effective among independents. And that's what I find in the survey research. She has the ability to move opinion of Trump upwards. And she's more effective than Chris Christie, for example, who was sort of Trump's surrogate and chief for a while, and she's even more effective than Trump himself. So they both have tremendous potential to be assets on the campaign trail, and it's a measurable effect. It's not just something anecdotal. It's not theoretical. It's a real impact that they can have. But if they have the ability to be assets, as you say, it would seem to mm-hmm. me then they also have the op- have the and they have that much power to to influence the presidential let's say campaign or uh, the president h- himself or herself I guess uh, 
then the opposite has to be true as well, doesn't it? Because, I mean, if you have that power, you can also have the power to be a detriment, it would seem to me. It has to be both. Sure. Yeah. Sure, there's the potential for that, but that's not what I found. So when I launched these experiments, you know, of course I would have reported the results if they had a detracting effect from the candidate's image or they had a negative impact on that person's popularity. That just is not what I've found. And that's very consistent over time, at least in the last three administrations. And so it really shores up the argument that these people are effective and it's not based in party, it's not based in personality, it's uh, consistently helpful to presidents and presidential candidates to have these people advocating for them in a strategic way, which they, which they all do. So in other words, it's the job itself, it's, it's, it's what you're saying, it's just the, the nature or the position? That, sure, it's, a, yeah. it's a very unique position. So first ladies are not elected officials, they're not appointed, and so they can more effectively make the argument that, hey, I'm an outsider, I am only here for this person that I love and I've chosen to spend my life with, I'm not a political person, you know, Bill Clinton has a little bit more trouble with that particular angle, but they are able to much more effectively and more genuinely make the case that they're an outsider and they're there because they care about the person. That speaks volumes for a candidate. Um, they're also interesting to the public by nature of the fact that they're the closest person to the president. And so, you know, when they speak about the person's character when they say the president really cares about this issue, the president really cares about you, they come off more authentically than another surrogate can, such as a, maybe a VP pick who's only really known the candidate for the last year or so. This is someone that's known the person their entire life before their political career and throughout. So the public is naturally interested in the closest person to the principal. So it comes across as not business as usual. This isn't a business partner, but this is an intimate partner. This is someone who has shared all of these intimacies with the President of the United States of America. And, and exactly. Yeah, and that's very different than someone who, you know, who's in business with, the, like, the, say, the Vice President, mm-hmm. for instance. So what do you, what's the impact of all of this? Because you've been studying all well, these last three administrations. What do you think? What does that say for... Uh, well, in the future of the First Ladies or even the Presidency? Well, the communications responsibility and activity has only grown. And so I see that increasing into a Clinton administration or a Trump administration because I think that staff have learned the best ways to mobilize these people. And the ways they mobilize them have become much more targeted. So what we see, for example is these traditional ceremonial speeches that First Ladies give, um, groundbreakings, award ceremonies. Those have remained constant over time. But what has skyrocketed is campaign appearances. Those have increased dramatically. And speeches where First Ladies advocate for their own issues, but they also put it in context of the administration's broader policy agenda. So... The appearances have become so strategic, and I think 
the impact of that will just be uh, more and more refined, if you will. Can you give us an example, and actually in any one of these administrations, because, I mean, you've really, they've been under your scrutiny, uh, you know, real specific examples where first ladies have been in those, and it's been first ladies, but first spouses, I guess, um, in in those kinds of positions. Examples of speeches, because I know you've analyzed, what, thousands of them, so, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Sure. It's So a very common strategy is for a first lady to give a speech um, that appears to be completely about their own initiative. So a good example of this would be uh, Michelle Obama's Let's Move initiative, which is her anti-childhood obesity initiative. But in, in the scope of those speeches, she'll often talk about health care reform, preventative health care, and the Affordable Care Act. That has happened a few times, and she's given speeches also Uh, explicitly about the Affordable Care Act, but she'll say, I'm interested in this because I'm a mom and I care about our kids and I care about how obesity is affecting the cost of health care in America and is affecting future generations. So everything is very targeted. Everything's strategically linked. With Laura Bush, uh, you know, her Afghans Women initiatives, which she still continues to work on to this day, were intended to make people see the war on terror a little bit differently. She talked about the side of the war on terror that was affecting women and children in Afghanistan and how much they were suffering under the Taliban and under these extremist regimes. And so those initiatives, uh, while they, of course, have to be interesting to first ladies, they, of course, have to have some experience in those areas, at least that's where they're the most comfortable are really linked to the administration's broader policy agenda. And that's been an effective way for them to really shore up that agenda and make it more appealing to more people or provide a more human face to these sometimes very controversial policies. I could give you way more, too, but those are some good examples of that in recent years. Well, those are great examples. And and, and as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking, well, then, I mean, as this... I guess as this kind of initiative continues, uh, first ladies are going to be perhaps more sophisticated in their message, or they're going to be their messages are going to be propped up in a more sophisticated way. And it would seem to me also the who is ever running for president of the United States is really going to have to be, um, I guess, married to someone who's able to kind of pull this off at the same time. I mean, you could be married to the President of the United States, but not necessarily be someone who can speak out, who speaks well, who, um, you know, has the skills to be able to do this. That's true, and they might not want to do as much of that, but I think it would be a detriment to the administration because they have, you know, covered so much in recent years and benefited from these strategies. So I think, you know, if you get to the White House, you're already sort of a team player, and I think that that commitment to help your spouse probably continues into your years in the White House. But what I should also say is the East Wing is such a professionalized operation now. The First Lady has such a sophisticated staff Um, You know, they come from the private sector. Sometimes they come from PR or nonprofits. They come from all different backgrounds. Some have been in government for very many years. Some are policy experts. 
So if you look at their staff, even though the staff size has not increased over time, it's usually between 16 and 25 people. That's been the case from 1992 to today. The staff has become more highly specialized, so certain roles are given to particular people, and those initiatives we just talked about are individually staffed. So first ladies used to have a director of policy and projects, and they would oversee all of the first ladies' interests. But now specific staff are allocated to specific initiatives. So, for example, Let's Move has its own staff. Um, Reach Higher and Let Girls Learn, Mrs. Obama's education initiatives have their own staff. Um, Joining Forces has its particular staff. Not too many people, but it's become so organized and so specialized that I think anyone, even who didn't have that much experience, would be able to have the support to do it if they wanted to. So, it well, as you're describing it, it is becoming more, it definitely is becoming more sophisticated. Um, there, who impressed you the most, or maybe you don't want to say, like when you were studying the, well, these three first ladies, for instance, were, um, I mean, we're talking about Laura Bush, Michelle Obama, um, and Hillary Clinton. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. From a public opinion standpoint, I was very impressed with Laura Bush. On every one of those character questions we talked about, uh, does President Bush care about people like me? Is he honest? Is he moral? Is he a good leader? She moved opinion effectively and measurably and more effectively than Dick Cheney on every one of those questions and George W. Bush himself on every one of those questions. And she also moved opinion on administration policy. So uh, people had more favorable views of U.S. interventionism abroad after seeing an appeal from Laura Bush versus an appeal from the president or vice president. So from a public opinion standpoint, I was very surprised by her effectiveness and, and the amount that she did because people often point, uh, paint Mrs. Bush as a traditional first lady, but there's just really no empirical evidence of that. Uh, you know, she was very, very active more active publicly, uh, speeches being the primary measure than Hillary Clinton. Um, Going back in time, I would say Lady Bird Johnson was a very impressive figure to me. She was the first presidential spouse to campaign independently on the campaign trail in 1964. Um, You know, she took a lot of the campaign responsibility away from Jackie Kennedy in 1960 because she just had a baby. And so JFK came to her and said, can you get women excited about the ticket because my wife can't be on the campaign trail right now. So she did that. She, you know, she went to the South. She was born on the border of Texas and Louisiana. And she really in 1964 went to these states to what she said, prevent the South from becoming the whipping boy of the Democratic Party because the Civil Rights Act was so unpopular at that point. And so Lady Bird Johnson was the single advocate that went out by herself because she had a Southern heritage and she could communicate very effectively and tried to encourage people to vote for her husband. So both of those people, for sure. What about Jackie Kennedy? Because she's the one who always, she has the, you know, everyone 
or I guess maybe the masses or the general public or people might, like myself look at Jackie Kennedy as the one who was, you know, when she was in the White House, she made such a splash and such an impact on the American public. And, and what about her in, in, in terms of, of uh, being a, a powerful first lady? Well, she really was. And if you think about how much attention she drew to the White House, that's so important to consider and certainly nothing to trivialize because she got so much press attention. She was the first to appoint a press secretary to the First Lady, which was a very, very important move toward a professionalized office. She also did make strategic appearances. Sure, it wasn't as many, and she was more interested in preserving the White House in the social function of the First Lady, but To give a good example, she did a Life magazine spread, and she wanted the reporters to see her putting her children to bed by herself without the help of any staff. And that was her way of relating to the public and saying, I take care of my kids by myself, too. I spend this kind of time at home, and I'm the person that really does the most of this work. And so... She made those moves, and she was strategic, and, you know, every First Lady has their own interests, and hers are remembered uh, for, hers are remembered as, uh, you know, a preservationist, someone who was very fashionable, who spoke French fluently and got a lot of attention when she traveled abroad, Uh, but, but those appearances were very strategic, too. I think people often take that away from her, but, you know, that's, that's not necessarily the right way of looking at Jackie Kennedy. Fascinating. So what were the biggest surprises for you with any of these? I mean, all of these interviews, all of this research, anything that you kind of had like this, oh, I, I really kind of this aha experience um, as you were studying all, these, all of these first ladies? I was surprised to see how far back in time the role goes. I really think that if we had some way to hold the social status of women constant over time, we would see that presidential spouses have always been very active communicators. It's just that women haven't had the same status. And so even if you look back to Martha Washington, she gave the first documented speech by a first lady in 1789 on her way to her husband's inauguration. She stood up in a carriage and she felt compelled to speak to the journalists that were following her, and to thank uh, the military that was accompanying her on that trip. Uh, if you look at the front porch campaigns of the 19th century, spouses were central elements of those campaigns because they were hosting campaign events in their homes. Um, you know, Carrie Harrison is a very good example of that. In 1888, she was the most popular person on the campaign trail, um, and they had all of this campaign swag and propaganda with her image on it. Um, Ida McKinley, same sort of thing in 1896. 
So you kind uh, of can go right down right. the, you know, we, you, you can go, as you say, start with Martha Washington and bring it all the way up to, uh, well, the present day uh, potential uh, candidates. We have to say goodbye, and uh, this is fascinating. I I, cause I, yeah, and I want to, so I want to mention the book again, so uh, we can buy it uh, at, on Amazon, bookstores everywhere. Uh, on behalf of the president, presidential spouses and White House communication strategy today, Lauren Wright, Ph.D., Thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Thank you. Great to have you. Uh, we are going to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, uh, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. We'll see you next week. We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinesox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. 